Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 8 again. Matthew chapter 8. In our last sermon in this series, we considered Jesus' mighty work of healing the servant of a believing centurion. We begin our reading this afternoon in verse 18. Read to the end of the chapter, and the text we will consider is verses 28 to 34. Now when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave commandment to depart unto the other side. And a certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus saith unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And And another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said unto him, Follow me, and let the dead bury their dead. And when he was entered into a ship, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with waves, but he was asleep. And his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we perish. And he saith unto them, Why are ye so fearful, O ye of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. But the men marveled, saying, What manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now begins our text for the sermon. And when he was come to the other side into the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two possessed with devils, coming out of the tombs, exceeding fierce, so that no man might pass by that way. And behold, they cried out, saying, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? And there was a good way off from them, and heard of many swine feeding. So the devils besought him, saying, If thou cast us out, suffer us to go away into the herd of swine. And he said unto them, Go. And when they were come out, they went into the herd of swine. And behold, the whole herd of swine ran violently down a steep place into the sea and perished in the waters. And they that kept them fled and went their ways into the city and told everything and and what was befallen to the possessed of the devils. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, They besought him that he would depart out of their coasts. We read that far. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, I think you would agree that one of the most fascinating aspects of the ministry of our Lord on this earth 
was his mighty work of casting devils out of the souls of men. He began this work very early on in his ministry, according to Matthew chapter 4, verse 24. We read there that his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought on to him people with sicknesses and diseases, but also those which were possessed with devils, and he healed them. When Christ came into this world, it's as if Satan decided to launch an all-out assault on mankind, particularly in the regions where Jesus lived and moved. But while the purpose of Satan was obviously evil, God also had a purpose. And the purpose of God, who was sovereign over Satan and all of his devils, was to manifest in a most striking manner the power of his Son, Jesus Christ, over Satan. Satan and his devils still roam the earth today. And a question that often comes up is whether demon possession still takes place in the world today. And we will briefly consider that question in the sermon. Matthew relates the event of our text as part of a sort of catalog of some of the early mighty works of our Lord Jesus Christ. But Matthew does not list these mighty works in chronological order. This same event appears also in Mark and Luke. And in those two Gospels, we find the event recorded in the place where it actually happened in the timeline of the life of Christ. Matthew was simply ordering or listing a number of the earliest mighty works of Christ, and his intention was not to put them in chronological order. But Mark and Luke do that. And there we find the proper time when this event took place. And that already is of significance that we should take note The textual basis of my sermon is not only going to be the text that we read, but also the parallel account in Mark and Luke. And we didn't read that tonight. You will hear me say things in the sermon that you don't find here in Matthew, but I'm taking them from Mark and Luke. And that tells us something about the scriptures. And when we interpret the scriptures, we must always interpret scripture with scripture, comparing the scriptures with each other, and especially when we are explaining the Gospels. God has given to us four Gospel accounts of the life of Christ. We have to look at each of those accounts when there is an event recorded in each of them. And when we look at all of the the accounts, then we can see a beautiful harmony of what actually happened in all of its details. Think of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as a, a male choir. And each of them has a voice, and each of them is singing. And they're singing the same song, but from slightly different perspectives and with slightly different notes and tones. And you have to listen to all of them as they are singing together at the same time. And then you hear the beautiful song of the whole picture of the event of what happened. 
So when we look at Mark and Luke, we discover the time when this event happened. It happened after that day when Christ first began to teach the people in parables. Matthew doesn't record that till chapter 13. But Mark and Luke indicate that it was on that day when Jesus began to teach the people in parables from the seashore on the northern shore of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, by the city of Capernaum. He taught them all day in parables. And at the end of the day, he said to his disciples, let's get into the ship, let's launch the ship, and let's cross over to the other side. And they did. As they were sailing from the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee, southeast, a storm arose on the sea. Suddenly, the wind began to blow fiercely, and the clouds filled the sky above. And the rain came down, and the waves crashed against their little ship, but Jesus was fast asleep in the ship. The disciples were filled with terror. And they woke him up, Master, Master, we perish. Aren't you going to do something? The ship is going to sink. And Jesus said, Where is your faith? And he stood up in the midst of the ship in the storm, and he spoke to the storm and rebuked it, and he calmed it down so that there was a great calm and peace in the sea. And the disciples were filled with amazement and said, What manner of man is this? that even the wind and the waves obey him. We don't know exactly when they arrived, but it was after that that Jesus with his disciples arrived on the other side of the sea, into the land of the Gergesenes, as Matthew calls it, or if you look at Mark and Luke, the land of the Gadarenes. There is yet a third name given to this land. According to the alternate readings, And you will find that in other versions like the NIV and the ESV. They call it the land of the Gerasenes. I reject that alternate reading based on other manuscripts of the scriptures. And let's limit it down to the two that are given in the King James Version. The land of the Gergesenes, according to Matthew, or the land of the Gadarenes, according to Mark and Luke. It's not entirely clear which of those is the correct city where this happened. There was a city called Gergesa on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and there was a city called Gadara on the southern shore. It happened either by the one or the other of the cities. We can't be sure which one. But there is no contradiction between the two accounts. There's harmony if we understand that. If it was in the city of Gergesa on the eastern shore, it was still close enough to Gadara that it could be considered the land of the Gadarenes. Or if it was in the city of Gadara on the southern shore, it was close enough that it could be called the land of the Gergesenes. It just depends on the perspective of the writer and the reader. But what we know is that whether it happened at the one location or the other, it was a place near the seashore, it was on the opposite shore of where Jesus normally moved, and it was a place where there was mountains and caves, which were used as tombs for the dead, and there was a steep and rugged shoreline. 
Let's consider the mighty work of Christ casting of a demonic legion into a herd of swine. First of all, the misery of those possessed with devils. Secondly, the power of Christ to deliver from devils. And finally, the responses of fear and gratitude. We read in verse 28 of our text, And when he was come to the other side, that is, the other side of the Sea of Galilee, into the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two possessed with devils, coming out of the tombs, exceeding fierce, so that no man might pass by that way. The other accounts only know of one man who was possessed by a devil, but Matthew reveals that there were actually two. Probably one of those two men was on the foreground. Probably he was the spokesman, or perhaps he was even more grievously possessed than the other man. But there were two who were possessed with devils. What is demon possession? We could define demon possession as the miserable condition of an unregenerated person in which a demon or more than one demon enters into him and takes such complete control over his soul and mind and body that he is even able to speak through the mouth of that man. He is able to give to that man or a woman superhuman strength, and he is able to do things, carry out his will through the body of that person. That's demon possession. Now, how does it happen that a person becomes possessed with a devil or devils? It can happen either this way, that an unregenerated person, a heathen man, has invited the devil into his heart. There are people in the heathen world who take a fascination in the world of spirits. They try to talk to the dead. They try to get in touch with the gods and the spirit world. They go through mediums, through witches, sorcerers, and magic. And in this way, they open themselves up to the devil and his whole dominion, and sometimes even invite those spirits into their hearts in the hopes of gaining some kind of power or special knowledge or the ability to predict the future. But it's also possible that a demon simply entered into an unregenerated person. Not invited. Nevertheless, the man or woman is living such a debauched and wicked life of idolatry and wickedness that the demon sees an easy target and he invades the heart and soul of that person and takes control for his own reasons. That's demon possession. Now, when Jesus stepped out of the ship onto the shore of the land of the Gergesenes and Gadarenes, these two men began to walk up to him. They came out of their tombs, and they approached Jesus, and Jesus asked them, speaking to the demon in them, What is your name? And the demon spoke, or the spokesman of the demons, and said, My name is Legion, for we are many. 
Now, a legion was the largest military unit of the Roman army in those days. A legion was usually made up of about 6,000 men. Now, the demon doesn't necessarily mean to say that there were exactly 6,000 of them inside those two men, but the point is simply that demons are organized into units, military units, armies, and there was a military unit of demons that had taken over in the lives of these two men. My name is Legion, he said, for we are many. As you can see from the text, demon possession is a very miserable condition. If those men invited these demons into their lives in the hopes of gaining some power or knowledge or ecstatic sort of human experience and happiness, they were sorely mistaken. The demons made their lives miserable. Demons are deceitful. They promise happiness and give misery. Demons are hateful. Demons delight in causing misery to the human race, and they caused misery in the lives of those two men. If we compare the various accounts, we learn that the demons made these two men exceedingly fierce so that no one dared to walk by that way. They were so ferocious, so savage, and their threats were so fearful that no one even dared to walk by the tombs where they lived. Secondly, we are told that these demons gave them superhuman strength. The townspeople would come and try to bind their hands with fetters and chains, but these men simply broke the chains apart and the fetters, and they were unable to bind them. That caused such fear to the townspeople that they were forced into isolation. They had to live a lonely and solitary life. They did not have a house or a home. They did not wear clothing, but they ran about in their nakedness and lived in the tombs, the caves, with the bones and dead corpses of the people from that area. What a miserable life. The scriptures say that these men roamed the wilderness and the mountains day and night, crying out in their misery and cutting themselves with stones. And then Jesus arrives. And when Jesus steps foot on the shore and approaches, and the demons fill the men with a desire to approach Jesus, we see just how wicked these demons are. They used the voices of those men to say, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Notice that question, What have we to do with thee, Jesus? That question reveals that there was nothing to do with him, and he had nothing to do with them. There is no friendship between Christ and Belial. There is no fellowship between Jesus and the hordes of demons, but only enmity and hostility. God himself placed that hostility there between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. There was only hatred of those demons toward Jesus. And notice the arrogance of these demons. What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of God? 
And then they try to control what Jesus is about to do. Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? Or, in the words found in Mark, the demon actually says to Jesus, I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. The arrogance of those demons toward Jesus, the Son of God, knowing who he was, and yet in their audacity and foolishness, actually thinking they could tell him what to do. And yet we hear in their voice a note of terror. Demon possession was a miserable, miserable condition. As I said in the introduction, sometimes the question is asked whether demon possession still happens today. That's a question that is often debated in Reformed circles. You won't hear very much debate about that in charismatic circles. They, of course, believe it. They believe that demon possession absolutely takes place. And they also believe that we are able and called to cast out demons by speaking the name of Jesus and through exorcism. The Roman Catholic Church also believes in that and tries to practice exorcism, casting out demons through various strange incantations and formulas. We don't believe in all of that. Nevertheless, within the Reformed churches, there is and has been debate about whether or not demon possession actually happens still today. And particularly, that debate happens in Western Reformed circles, much less in the Reformed churches which are located in heathen, pagan lands, which are the result of missions. You'll find much more belief of demon possession among Reformed people there. A Protestant Reformed minister, Reverend Jason Cordering, labored in Singapore in the 1990s as a minister on loan and a missionary. He was there with his wife for almost a decade, and they labored not only in Singapore, but also in India and Myanmar and the Philippines. And they traveled throughout these pagan lands, which are under the, under the religions of Hinduism and Buddhism and others. In 1997, after living there for quite some time, he wrote a series of articles in the Standard Bear, which you can look up, called Demon Possession, in which he explored this question of whether demon possession still takes place. He explains in the very first article that growing up, and he was in his 50s or 60s by this time, he had always believed that demon possession doesn't happen anymore. He had been brought up that way, to think that way. He grew up in the Western culture like us. But through his experiences in Singapore and the Orient in general, he had changed his mind. And through the study of the scriptures, too, he had become convinced there is no real biblical argument that says demon possession absolutely doesn't happen anymore. There is much truth in the fact that Christ, through his death and resurrection, has won the victory over Satan once and for all. Nevertheless, Satan still roams the earth. He still walks about as a lion, seeking whom he would devour. He is a a wrath-filled dragon, and he is the god of this world and the prince of darkness. 
And Reverend Quartering became convinced that demon possession does still happen. But demon possession does not happen to those who are regenerated. Those in whom the Holy Spirit dwells cannot be possessed by a devil or devils. It does happen among the heathen. It happens among those who are not yet regenerated. They might be elect, but they've not yet been regenerated. Their hearts do not yet have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. And this is not to say that all unregenerated people are possessed by devils. But it is to say that some of them may be, particularly those who have an excessive fascination with the spirit world. If you go into India or Singapore and you go into a Hindu temple or a Buddhist temple, your mind might be changed on this. When you see people bowing down to idols, thinking that the idol is a real thing, And there are priests in these temples, sorcerers, mediums, and the people will go to those people and try to speak to their dead ancestors or speak to spirits or speak to the gods. And those mediums will actually engage in conversation with spirits. Those mediums are obviously the agents of Satan. There are no other gods. The dead spirits of human beings do not roam about. You can't talk to them. And yet there is some kind of conversation going on with an invisible spirit. Those are demons. The devil and his demons obviously have control in the heathen world. In our time in the Philippines, I never encountered a person possessed with a devil that I know of. But I did hear reports of such things there as well. Here in the West, it's hard for us to imagine that because the West has been a Christian culture, but that's changing. The West is now an anti-Christian culture and a post-Christian culture. And as our culture moves God and Jesus out, there is a religious vacuum that is left. But vacuums do not continue. Vacuums will be filled. When there is a void, when there is an emptiness of religion, something will come in to replace it. And we see that. Eastern religions, Eastern mysticism, yoga, transcendental meditation, all kinds of Buddhist and Hindu practices and beliefs have flooded our countries. As those false religions with their sorcery and witchcraft enter our cultures, there's a very real possibility that there are people who are giving themselves over to Satan and even inviting him into their hearts. Satan is real. Demons are real. They're not just figures on the pages of Scripture. They're not figments of our imaginations. They're real spirits who have power and can make their influence felt, and they roam the earth today. We cannot be possessed if we are regenerated children of God because the Holy Spirit dwells in our hearts. He will not allow a demon to possess us. Yet we should be warned to avoid superstition, 
sorcery, soothsaying, as much as we desire the salvation of our own souls. Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 34. We should not underestimate the power of the devil. But this should not fill our hearts with fear either. That we might encounter someone who is possessed with the devil. We might. But that's not to fill us with fear. It ought to fill us with pity. Because as we have seen, those who are possessed by a devil or devils have a miserable, miserable experience. They are lost souls. And now let's look at the pity that our Lord Jesus Christ took upon these men. We find in our text a marvelous revelation of the mercy of Christ and the power of Christ to deliver miserable sinners from the chains of Satan. Jesus came to the land of the Gergesenes and Gadarenes for this express purpose of delivering those two men. He had no other purpose of going there. Jesus' ministry mainly took place in Galilee and Judea. He had been teaching parables to the people in Capernaum. He was very tired. He told his disciples, get into the ship, let's go to the other side. The disciples didn't know it, but Jesus had a mission to perform on the other side of the sea. There were men there. There were two lost sheep there who were bound in the chains of darkness. And he had the purpose of saving them. So they got into the ship and they set sail across the sea. And as we said earlier, a storm arose. It's very possible that that storm itself, although under the sovereign control of God, was stirred up by Satan himself. Because the land of the Gadarenes was a stronghold for Satan. He had a legion of his demons there that had taken control of these two men. Satan himself may have been the one who stirred up that storm on the sea to prevent Jesus from crossing and liberating those men. And one proof of that is the fact that when Jesus stood up in the midst of the boat, he rebuked the storm. He rebuked it just as he would later rebuke the demons. If the storm was merely what we might call a force of nature, then why would he rebuke the storm? Why not simply cause it to stop by saying peace? He rebuked it. The storm was calmed. The ship crossed the sea safely, and they arrived at the opposite shore. When Jesus and his disciples arrived, he wasted no time in fulfilling his mission, which was to display his power over Satan and his legions. Jesus approached from the shore. There were caves with tombs where they buried the dead. And the two men came running out of the caves to meet Jesus, moved by the devils, prompting them to approach Jesus on the seashore. And Jesus strode right up to them and was the first one to speak. The first words that were spoken on the beach that day came out of Jesus' mouth, and they were this. 
Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. We see there the majesty of Jesus, the fearlessness of Jesus, his power and authority as he marched up against the hordes of Satan and commanded them to come out. The men, we are told, fell down before Jesus on their faces and worshipped him. They cried out, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Art thou come to torment us before the time? It's amazing. The demons in those men knew who Jesus was. They knew that he was the Son of God. Those two men had never seen Jesus before. Those two men did not know who Jesus was. But the demons did. And the demons, speaking through the voices of those men, said, Jesus, what have we to do with thee, thou Son of God, with their faces flat on the ground? We see the power of Christ over those men, over those demons. They could not stand face to face and toe to toe with Jesus, but they fell on their faces before him. And they begged him. They knew, too, that there was a time appointed for them. Art thou come to torment us before the time, they said? They knew that there was a time. There was a limitation. There was going to be an end. And they would not be able to do their wicked work any longer. And when that time came, they knew what that time would mean. They would be cast into the abyss of hell for all eternity. And they did not want that. Art thou come to torment us before the time, they said? It's interesting how these devils knew who Jesus was and knew that he was the Son of God, the Lord, and the Judge. It reminds us of what James writes in James 2, verse 19. Remember that in that passage, he warns us not to have a dead faith a faith in which we simply acknowledge that God exists, and then we go on with our lives, unconcerned and uninterested in living a godly life of good works. James reminds us there in chapter 2, verse 19, Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. These devils believed. They knew who Jesus was. They hated him, and they feared him. The devils begged Jesus that if Jesus was really intent on casting them out, that he would not cast them yet into the abyss, but rather into that herd of swine over yonder. From their vantage point on the beach, they could see a herd of swine somewhere far off, grazing in the field. The existence of that herd of swine in lands which were inhabited by Jews and Gentiles reveals one of two things. Either that the men who owned those swine were heathen Gentiles who did not know the law of God, or they were Jews who did not care about the law of God. In Leviticus 11, verses 7 through 8, 
God said to the Old Testament Israelites in his law, and the swine, though he divide the hoof and be cloven-footed, yet he cheweth the cud, he is unclean to you. Of their flesh shall ye not eat, and their carcass shall ye not touch. They are unclean to you. So the existence of that herd of swine reveals that there was lawlessness in the land of the Gadarenes. Jesus had come, but he had not yet fulfilled the law. He was in the process of fulfilling the law. And it was only after his death and resurrection and ascension that the Old Testament civil and ceremonial laws would no longer apply. At this point, they did still apply. And yet there was that herd of swine. There were those herdsmen leading them about, killing them, touching them, eating the unclean meat in blatant contradiction to God's law. The demons begged Jesus that he would let them go into the herd of swine. Why did they ask that? It's possible that the demons in some strange way that we can hardly understand all these centuries later, having not grown up in the Old Testament, felt some kind of affinity toward those creatures. After all, the demons themselves were unclean spirits, and those swine were labeled as unclean animals by the Lord, and so the demons felt some kind of affinity that just as the swine were forbidden to the Israelites, they too were forbidden to the Israelites. Let us go into the swine. Let us join ourselves to those of like kind. Perhaps, in the second place, the demons were simply trying to hold on to control of their fate. Like all proud and arrogant men and women who do not want to let go of control in their lives. Surely these demons, too, hated the fact, they despised Jesus for the fact that he was in control, he had dominion over them, he was going to cast them out, and there was nothing they could do about it in their lust for control of their own existence. They tried to control the destination where they would be cast out. Or perhaps in the third place, the devils knew that if Jesus would cast them into the swine and they could wreak havoc in the herd, this would leave a bad reputation for Jesus in the land of the Gadarenes and Gergesenes. Perhaps their goal was just that, to turn the people against Jesus in this way. But that leaves us asking the question, Why did Jesus grant their request? We read in the text that when they asked Jesus for permission to go into the swine, he simply said, go. And immediately the demons released those two men and flew out of them all at once and invaded that herd of swine. They drove the pigs mad and they drove them to run into the sea. Those pigs had been peacefully grazing there in the grass, and suddenly they jumped up on their feet and ran full steam ahead right toward the sea, toward that steep 
place, which was either a cliff or a gradual but steep incline, and the pigs, all of them, all 2,000 of them, tumbled down the steep incline into the deep waters of the sea and were choked and drowned and perished. And at that point, the demons, no doubt, flew out of the swine and went about doing their wicked work elsewhere. Why did Jesus allow them to do that? Surely the reason is not that Jesus needed to bargain with the demons. As if Jesus didn't have absolute control over them. That he had to strike a bargain with them to get them to do what he wanted them to do. On other occasions, most if not all other occasions, Jesus simply cast the demons out of people by the word of his power. That was not the explanation. Perhaps the explanation is that Jesus was giving a reminder and sending a judgment upon those owners of the pigs. They were unlawfully herding swine in Jewish lands against God's law. Jesus had come to fulfill the law, but not to destroy it. He just has said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, I came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And until heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle of the law will pass. And there was a jot and a tittle in the law that said, No pigs, they are unclean to you in the Old Testament. And yet there were the swine. And so perhaps Jesus cast the demons into the swine as a judgment upon those local people for their blatant breaking of God's law and a reminder to them to keep his law. Another possibility, and part of the answer is also this, as the demons themselves knew, the time for ultimate judgment had not yet come. Wilt thou torment us before the time? The time for final judgment will come when Jesus returns. Then he will cast all of the devils not into a herd of swine, but into the lake of fire for all eternity. But let's focus on the gospel in the text. What a mighty and wondrous work of God's grace through Christ. He saved those two men from the power of the devil, from the power of many devils, we know not how many. Suddenly, the devils are cast out of them and they are set free. And the other Gospels tell us that the men sat down at the feet of Jesus and they were given clothes to wear and they were sitting there in their right minds. It was as if they had woken up from a terrible, terrible nightmare. And suddenly they were sane again and they had control of their minds and their faculties. If you would have asked those men at that moment, what is your only comfort in life and death? I think maybe they would have said the words of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 1, that I, in life and in death, with body and soul, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, this Jesus, who is the Christ, who has delivered me from all the power of the devil. Jesus had done just that. And he has delivered us 
from all the power of the devil as well. We must not take for granted the wonder of salvation that Christ has done in our lives. Christ has given himself on the cross, shedding his blood in order to conquer the devil and all of his hosts, to break the chains with which he was previously able to hold us. He stomped on the head of the serpent at the cross, even as the devil gleefully watched men nail him to that cross and gleefully watched him suffer and die and shed his blood. In that very moment, he judged the prince of darkness and won the victory. His resurrection from the dead is the proof of his victory over Satan. Jesus has now sent the Holy Spirit into our hearts. How often do we think about that and remember that in our day-to-day lives? We are ultimately out of reach from the devil. He is not able to possess us. He is not able to inhabit us and to take control over us. He's able to influence us and tempt us, but he has no ultimate power over us whatsoever. The Spirit of Jesus Christ dwells in our hearts, and he will never leave us. He dwells in us. We are his temple, and therefore we too have been delivered from all the power of the devil. He came to seek and to save the lost. We see here in the passage the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why I said earlier, if we encounter men and women in our lives who seem to be possessed by a devil, or at least heavily influenced by the powers of darkness, we shouldn't be afraid of them. We serve the exalted Lord who has power over all things. And what we ought to have is pity. The same compassion that our Lord had to those two men that drove him from Galilee over to the land of the Gergesenes just for those two men. Because after he saved them from those devils, he immediately got in the ship and went back to Galilee. What mercy and compassion our Lord Jesus Christ has for those who are under the power of the devil. And what was the response? The response of the herdsmen and the townspeople was fear. When the owners of those swine saw what had happened and saw their livelihood just run off of a cliff into the sea, they ran into the city and told everybody what had happened. And we're told that the whole city came out to the seashore, meaning the vast majority of the people in the city all came out to see what had happened. They saw that the pigs were gone. They saw that those two men were sitting there, clothed in their right minds at the feet of Jesus. They should have been filled with amazement, with faith, with joy. The Savior has come. 
but we are told that they were filled with fear. They were taken with great fear. They must have assumed in their pagan unbelief that this Jesus was just some kind of terrible sorcerer, and they wanted him to leave their coasts immediately. They begged him, please, please leave, please leave us alone. Go out of our country. We don't want you here. That demonstrates that Jesus has not come into the world to seek and to save all. He came for those two men. He has come to save his elect. But what was the response of those demon-possessed men now set free? It was wholly different. Matthew doesn't tell us about it, but again, if we listen to the whole chorus of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we also learn the response of those men. When Jesus got into the ship with his disciples and they were about to push off and head back to Galilee, the two men ran down to the shore and they said, Lord, please let us come with you. We want to follow you. Lead us wherever you will. We want to spend the rest of our life in your service. But Jesus said to them, no. But rather, go back into the city. Go back to your family. Go to your friends. And tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee. And hath had compassion on thee. And they did. They obeyed the Lord. Whatever the Lord Jesus would have said to them, they would have done it. They were filled with such profound gratitude. They went back into the city. And we're told that they published abroad, not only in that city, but throughout the region of Decapolis, what great things God had done for them through Jesus Christ. They became witnesses of the mighty works of Jesus, and they spread the gospel. So what is our response? As those who also have been delivered from all the power of the devil, who have been given the Holy Spirit to dwell with us forever, to lead us on the path to eternal life. Jesus says to us, when we, in our great gratitude to him, say, Lord, let me come, let me go with you. To most of us, Jesus says, no. I don't call you to be an apostle. I don't call you to be a minister. But go home and tell your family and your friends and your neighbors what great things God has done for you and how he has taken compassion on you. Is that your desire? As you go home today, as you go to work tomorrow, as you talk to your relatives who are unbelievers, as you talk to your coworkers and friends who are unbelievers, tell them what great things God has done for you through Christ and how he has taken compassion upon you. And should should you meet those who, like those men, were possessed with devils, 
Don't be afraid. God is on our side. Christ has won the victory for us for all eternity. But rather, speak to them the gospel. Testify to them about Jesus, who is Lord over all, all things visible and all things invisible. Tell them that Christ, not Satan, is the ruler of this world. Call them to repent and believe. We must not simply assume that if they are possessed with the devil, there's nothing to say to them. The person is still in there. Even though they may be so influenced by the devil, by drugs, by whatever, the person is still in there. Call them to repent. Call them to believe in Jesus Christ and warn them of the danger. Because when the time does come, Christ will cast all devils into the lake of fire for all eternity. There's a warning. And then pray for them. Do you have a neighbor? Do you have a coworker who is obviously, if not possessed by the devil, yet ensnared by his power? Pray for them. Pray. The Lord Jesus, if it is his will, will break those chains asunder, set them free, and bring them to faith in Christ. Amen. Our God and Father, we stand amazed at thy mighty works. We thank thee for these wonderful scriptures, these vivid tales of the mighty works of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank thee that thou hast set us free through the power of his blood from principalities and powers of darkness. And we pray now, fill us with such joy and gratitude that as we go home, that we may speak and tell everyone what great things thou hast done for us and how thou hast had compassion upon us. Make unto us, make us to be fit instruments of the gospel of our Savior. And may thy name receive all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.